all my car. Then at the same time, I can say, um, I, I love my car, or, or I love my job, or I can say, I love pizza, or, or any one of these different things, right? And so we can use this word love, and as we use it, right, those aren't the same kinds of, of love, right? And so what love is this complicated word that's based on its context and how it's used. It has different meaning and different significance. Now, you know, the most common image that's used um, from love, in fact, if you just Google love and just pulled up images, the most common image, you know, kind of brings you back to Valentine's Day, right? It's this holiday that's all about love. And so the most common image is well, hearts. I mean, a heart is kind of like the universal symbol of, of, of love. So if you, if you, uh, if you Google uh, love and you pull up the different images that it brings, it, <laughs> If you have your safe uh, search settings set on your images, uh, hopefully you have those set. If you have those set, it'll bring up nothing but a bunch of, some of y'all got that. No, nothing but Google images will pull up some crazy stuff. I'm just letting you know. Uh, it, it will pull up images of hearts and, 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 and flowers, and there's all this red and pink and purple and all these colors. And, and, and in our society, stereotypically, if you will, all right, love is, is kind of... Uh, um, it's associated with this feminine imagery, this strong feminine imagery. But when we get into the Bible, we see that love is, is, is more than just a feeling, right? That love is fundamentally sacrificial. That it's, um, in fact, we get in John 3.16, a passage that we've passed already in, in this story. We see in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish um, but have eternal life, for God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Right. So the Bible is telling us that the core of love is not this feeling, right? It's not these parts. It's not God showering down roses from heaven on us. But at the core of love is this sacrifice that God so loved the world that He came. Not for God so loved the world that He had flutters in His in his heart when he thought about us. Not God so loved the world that he couldn't wait to come and meet with us. Not God so loved the world that he wanted to eat us like pizza, right? None of that kind of stuff, right? But God so loved the world that he understood the fundamental component of love is sacrifice. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his one and only son, he gave what was most precious to him. He did something so difficult, so unimaginable. It had to be power. It had to have power behind it. And so what we see in the scriptures is love is more than just this uh, place of vulnerability that's represented by hearts and flowers, this place of putting our heart on the line. Love is more than that. Love is strength and bravery. Love requires sacrifice, and sacrifice requires this strength and this courage, must bring up the strength. It has to be empowered by something. And what the scriptures show us over and over again is that Jesus' love was powered by God, the greatest power known to 
man. For God so loved the world that he gave, not man chose on his own ability and his own strength to give up the thing most precious to him. But God who was at work in Jesus Christ motivated him, emboldened him, empowered him to give up his son for us. And so as we get into the Gospel of John and I feel like, uh, as I read through the Gospel of John, I feel like John is a very intentional writer, right? It's just a, kind of the way that he operates, the way he does things. Uh, it, it, especially if you, if you start reading it over and over again and compare it to other Gospels, you see that John is going somewhere, right? When he places stories, he places them in strategic ways. When he says stuff, he says it in a particular kind of way to make a point. And one of the things that I believe very uh, wholeheartedly that John is doing in this Gospel for us to grasp the love of God is that he opens his gospel very um, um, kind of in an introductory way, right? It gets to John 3.16, for God so loved the world that, that, that he gave his one and only son. And from that point forward, everything in this gospel is going to reveal to us exactly what that love looks like. And so John is intentional about showing us this kind of summary statement about what love is, right? It's this sacrifice, it's this giving, it's just strength and bravery and courage to give up what's most valuable to you. And then he's going to show us how this plays plays out. And in this story we're looking at this morning, we're particularly seeing how the story plays out with this woman at the well. And what we see in this story is that God's love motivated Jesus and empowered Jesus to intentionally love a woman whose society intentionally overlooked. And in this story, we see God's love being intentionally shown to a woman who was living in a community that was intentionally overlooking her. Now, Jesus had every right, in fact, socially in their world, right? He had every right, right to overlook this, this woman. And in fact, he could have done it, and some people probably said he should have done it, right? He should have overlooked this woman for a number of different reasons. Jesus could have overlooked this woman who was at the well. But what we see is that he purposefully entered into her life, right? He purposefully entered into her entire story. But the, 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 at least three reasons, right? Right? He should have overlooked this woman. Uh, the first one, reason why he couldn't overlook this woman is simply um, because of her, uh, of her race, right? Um, she was a Samaritan, and that's what the Bible is telling us from, from the beginning, right? That this lady was a Samaritan. Now, if you aren't familiar with the uh, history behind Jews and Samaritans, it's complicated. Um, in fact, it goes back at least 700 years before uh, the birth of Jesus. And when the Assyrians invaded the Jews, right, and some of the Jews intermarried with the Syrians, and those became these, these kind of, um, these um, biracial people became the Samaritans. And in that world, they were considered, um, they were considered impure and by the Jews. And the Jews didn't want to have anything to do with them. And so they separated themselves from them. In fact, they lived in different places. In fact, they evolved in different kind of ways as a culture. And so for a long time, they had lived segregated lives and they had hated one another and really wanted to have nothing to do with each other. And in this story, what we see Jesus doing is something um, peculiar. And I think... Um, I, 
and I and I think I don't know if I'm going to with this, and I could be wrong. So let me throw that out there. Could be wrong, but I think Jesus was being very intentional about traveling through Samaria. Now, um, the, the, the reason why I say I could be wrong on this is it's twofold. Like a lot of times, Jews would travel through Samaria quickly in order to save themselves a few miles. And so there's a possibility here that Jesus was really just trying to save some miles, right? It was a long day. He didn't want to go walking all the way around Samaria. The shortest route was to go straight through. But because of his encounter there in Samaria, I believe that he was intentional about going there. But if you look at the story, just the way it begins in John chapter 4, verse 3, listen to what it says. He left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. He didn't give it half to. You know, he's done this one of these numbers. That would take a lot more time. So the route that people typically took was to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, to a city of Samaria called Sikar. Now, like when they just say Sikar, I'm a joke. Also, did you see the side eye the lady at the well was giving Jesus? Sorry. Um, so he so came to a city called uh, Sikar, Sikar uh, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Joseph's well was there. So Jesus, being weary from his journey, was sitting thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. And so we have uh, Jesus who was traveling through Samaria because it was a short route and because he knew that God had work for him to do. Now, I think there's something very powerful in this story that, that um, and I'm getting, I'm getting to these reasons why Jesus had every right to overlook this lady, um, but the fact that Jesus traveled through, this is how a Jew typically would have traveled through Samaria, with the mind of getting through as quickly as possible. But Jesus traveled through Samaria with his eyes open, wide, looking for opportunities to glorify God. That's a lot about our lives, right? A lot of times we're traveling through our day in order to get through it as quickly as possible. But there are times that God wants us to open our eyes and to see what's around us and opportunities that we have in every single day to glorify God. But here we have Jesus traveling through Samaria. And it says in verse 7, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. John wants to make it clear that we know that this is outside of the norm, that we're dealing with a different day and age, a different time, a different people. A Jew would have died of thirst before he asked a Samaritan for something to drink. And so John is like, the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. A Jewish rabbi, a teacher, a minister, he had no business talking to this Samaritan. But because of God's love that was alive in him, he entered into this lady's life in a unique way just by asking her for a drink. And so some would have said that Jesus should have ignored her um, because of her her, her race. 
Another reason why some would say that Jesus should have ignored this woman, could have ignored her, had every right to ignore her, is because she was a woman, because of her gender. So here we have Jesus and this woman, the only two at the well. He, this, is, um, um, this is how the rumor mill gets started, right? Uh, this is how stories start to spread about stuff that may or may not have happened. Uh, these are how those stories get started. Here, here Jesus was. And then there's this woman at the well, and Jesus is engaging her in conversation. Now, in biblical times, much more than in our times, men and women would have had no interactions, not knowing if this woman was married or her husband was looking on, if just not knowing any of the details and not wanting to get caught up there at the well. Typically, a man would not have engaged with the woman in the way that she did. Now there's, um, I remember hearing um, a long time ago about Billy Graham. In fact, this is when I first, um, I was first going into ministry, and I don't know where I, where I bumped up against this, and it's, it's kind of all over the place, but Billy Graham, um, the great evangelist and minister uh, who uh, preached to thousands and had a long, um, has had a long, uh, influential, impactful uh, ministry. One of the things that he had a rule for himself and that rule was that he wouldn't eat, he wouldn't travel, um, and he wouldn't meet alone with a woman. He felt like he always needed to have someone else there for accountability, right? To stop one, to stop the rumor mill um, from, from happening or, or, or rolling. Uh, but two, also, um, because he knew that he was just a man, and that he was flesh and blood. And so he had this uh, this rule that he just he just wouldn't right. He wouldn't find himself alone because no one kind of uh, no um, not not everyone just kind of in, intentionally walks into sexual misconduct, right? There are times that innocent meetings happen, and innocent meetings turn into a mess, right? And so Billy Graham knew this, and he said this wrong. Now, some people have been hard on him um, because of this. They, they've said, oh, I mean, come on. I mean, you're really not in public. You know, why, why set that rule, right? And, you know, it's not like you're going to be in a coffee shop and you're just going to start, you know, groping on some woman, right? It's not quite often happening that way. So, you know, you could eat together, you could meet together, you could do these different kinds of things. So some people have been hard on him, uh, saying, why do you have this? And then look at Jesus, right? If Jesus can do it, if we're followers of Jesus, surely we could, you know, meet with women alone and have these conversations with him. But look at this story. Um, because look, if you jump down to verse, verse 27, um, even Jesus' disciples were kind of surprised by this. In verse 27, it says, at this point, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek, or why do you speak with her? I, and I, I think the disciples, I had to put myself in their shoes, they're probably going, whoa, is this okay? Like, can we have private meetings with, it's like, is this now not off limits for us? Like, can we, can we do this? Um, and, and the thing that, that, I, that I think we, we have to see is that love was perfected in Jesus Christ. That love was perfected in him. And so his intentions and his motives and his heart was totally pure. And none of us can say that at every moment and every day. In fact, the Bible teaches us that our hearts are deceitful and that they will lead us into situations 
and that there are some things that we will do that just cannot be undone. And I, I think the challenge here of this passage isn't to say, um, well, Jesus did it, so certainly can I. But we need to say, God, let your love be perfected in me. And while it's being perfected in me, I know my boundaries, right? I know my weaknesses. I know my limits. But what we see here in this story is that it was uh, socially unacceptable. It was against social conventions for Jesus to be meeting with this woman. But because love was perfected in him, he defied these cultural norms. And he sat down with this woman all alone and engaged with her in, in conversation. The third thing I want you to see, the third way that Jesus defied social social conventions. Uh, the third way I want you to see that Jesus defied social conventions is that in, in, in ways that people would have looked at him and said that he shouldn't have, maybe uh, wouldn't have, and, and, and whatever, uh, while people wouldn't have had a hard time with him. Was this, this lady was, um, she was a victim of public disgrace. Um, she had major sin and people knew about it. Uh, their community had known about it, and they had rejected her. And she had become an outcast, and she was marginalized from their community. In fact, the first way that we know that this is true is when we're looking in this story, if you go back even just to verse 6, I'm going to jump right in the middle there. It says, so Jesus, being weary from his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about the sixth hour, it says. That was about noontime that Jesus was sitting at the well, uh, and there's a reason why this woman was at the well all by herself. It's because the women of that community had marginalized her. They had outcasted her. And so she had to go to the well during the middle of the day in the blazing hot sun all by herself because the women of that community wanted to have nothing to do with her um, because they felt like her behavior was disgraceful and she needed to be rejected from that community and not accepted and, and not love. But as we read that story further, and this is one of the ways we see Jesus intentionally entering this lady's life and into her story. As we read that story further, we see when Jesus asks for her husband, right? When he says, go get your husband, Jesus is going somewhere with this story. Look at that, um, where, where that happens in verse 16. It says, he said to her, go call your husband and come, uh, go call, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. This you have said truly. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And so here's what's going on in this story. Some people have said that this lady was loose for biblical standards, right? And she had been with at least five different men, and she was now on her sixth. There's another possibility to this story, and that definitely is a possibility. But the th another possibility to the story is just that she had been rejected, right? Not not loose, but let go 
five different times, and now she had learned that non-committal relationships was really just the easiest route to go. But for whatever reason in their society, this was a reason for her to be rejected by both the men and women of that community. And so here she is at the well by herself because she's been broken, because she has shame, she's been humiliated by her culture, and Jesus had every right, now this woman, one being a Samaritan, right, should have had nothing to do with her, two being a woman, really should have had nothing to do with her, three being a woman that's willing to um, uh, hook up with in non-committal relationships, Jesus, right, uh, uh, wisdom would tell us, run, brother, run, right, you find yourself in that situation, I say flee uh, this situation, because love has not been perfected in you, Jesus should have said, you've got five husbands, uh, I will talk to you later. But Jesus stays in the story because love was being perfected in, in, in him. And, and he does something powerful here. He takes um, what society used to humiliate her, to disgrace her, and he overcomes it, overcomes it with the amazing and powerful grace of God. This is one of those stories where we begin to see the kind of grace that accompanies God's love. It says it, 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 it doesn't really that doesn't really matter. It matters what you've done. Um, but what you've done does not deter God. The mistakes you've made or even the painful, the painful life or hand you've been dealt does not in any way deter the love and acceptance of God. Because God's love is just that powerful. That it can overcome any failing, any hurt, any pain, any shame. You can overcome a community that has let you go, even if it's because you've been let go over and over and over again, and it can come close and heal any kind of wound. And what we see in this story is that Jesus defied social conventions, right? Rights, norms, and he acted in a way that was socially taboo so that this woman could taste the living water of God. Because that's what he offers the woman at the well. He says, you're drawing for water, but let me offer you living water. Now, anyone um, that's been outside for a long time without water on a blazing hot day knows how valuable water is. Water is one of those things, right? Uh, in, in this story, um, this story, it, um, yeah, I mean, they, they, all throughout the Gospel of John, like Jesus says stuff and the way people respond, I don't think this is in the primary slides, um, but the way people respond to him is, 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 is kind of comical. I think it's, it's verse 15. Uh, yeah, the woman said to him, uh, Sir, give me this water, right? When he offered her living water. She says, uh, Give me this water uh, so that I will not thirst nor come at all. Uh, no, no, sorry, I'm, I'm, I wasn't planning on reading this, so I'm just going to go through it. Let me back back. Right? The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not thirst nor come all the way here to draw. So here's this woman, and I, you know, I'm, I'm reading this thing, and I'm going, what is this lady thinking like? When she says, I'm going to give you living water, she's like, oh, well, I don't have to go to the well anymore. Right? Jews were going to give her a pill, and she's no longer going to get thirsty anymore. 
Or, or did she think Jesus was going to like dig a hole and run some plumbing lines into her house? Because <laughs> she goes, hey, I, hey, give me this water so I can no longer, like, I'm no longer the thirst, I'm no longer come to the well. Um, but when Jesus was offering her something different, you see, for years, this lady had been coming to that well to draw water because water runs out, right? Water uh, quenches our thirst for a little while before we need a little bit more, especially in the desert and the heat of the day. We are constantly going to need more water. We're never going to get to a time where we've had enough water. Even people who have running water in our houses, we still need water. There's times that we feel like we're dying of thirst because water is essential to life. It is essential for our survival. And so here we have this lady here filling her bucket day after day because that's the way water works, right? It runs out. It quenches for a little while and then you need a little bit more. And so she had been satisfied. She knew what it was to be satisfied by, um, by water. But what she didn't know was what it felt like to have her soul satisfied in the same way. To have that same feeling for her soul, this feeling of satisfaction, this feeling of fulfillment. And when Jesus says he's going to offer her living water, what he's talking about is this satisfaction that meets the depths of her soul, that fulfills her in a way that water can't. And it causes her never to have the thirst and long again. And so here we have this lady with this bucket, but this bucket is really representative of something different. It's representative of all the ways she's tried to quench the thirsting of her soul, right? And for this lady, she's been filling her bucket with men, right? And she got another one in it right now. And and she feels like, because she doesn't have love and has never experienced unconditional love, but has been left and left and left and left and left and she's being afraid of being left again, right? She's just keeping these men in her bucket just like water trying to refill herself with something that's merely a shadow of love. That's not love itself but wanting all the while for her soul to be quenched of its thirst. And she's dying of thirst. And if we're we're reading this this story um, engaged in it, and not just reading it as a fun story to read or a biblical story, if we're we're engaged in this story, the story is going to prompt us to ask, what am, I, what am I filling my bucket with? In, in this world where we're so easily unsatisfied and searching for things to bring satisfaction, the story is asking us, what am I filling my bucket with? Am I, am I filling my bucket with this feeling of security? Got a nice job, got a car that's paid for, got a job that I'm fear that I'm going to be let go of. I'm in a marriage that's healthy right now. Is that, is that security the thing that you're filling your bucket with? I, I'm working on my savings. I need to add, I need to add more to that. I need to add more to that so that I have this feeling of security. Are you constantly drawing from the whale to add security to, to your life? Right, what, are you, what, are you, what are you filling your bucket with? Or what is the thing that you feel that as long as you can attain it, as long as you can grasp it, as long as you can have it for yourself, then your soul will be satisfied. I will just be okay if only I could have. 
healthy marriage. If only I can, if only I can have my kids growing out of the house with good stable jobs. If, if only I can have you name it. What are we filling our buckets with? If only I can have a decent relationship with a decent man as this lady, right? And would love me for me and wouldn't leave me, right? What's something different? If only I could have. See, if we're tracking with this story, if we're engaging it like we engage with Scripture, we're asking ourselves this question, what am I filling my bucket with? And Jesus' response to that question is, is, is a challenge. And it's stop looking for satisfaction in the things of this world, which ultimately can never, ever satisfy the longing of your soul. In fact, if we go back to the Old Testament in Jeremiah, there's this scripture that begins talking about this idea of living water. And in fact, this idea of living water flows throughout all of scripture. God uh, giving us what our soul is longing for, which ultimately is God, right? Not the things of this world, because created things can no um, can, can never satisfy. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, listen to this scripture. Uh, For my people have committed two evils, right? He's labeling this evil. Um, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, um, jars of a war um, that can hold no water. Jeremiah is saying you've carved out a life for yourself because you feel like it can hold water, because you feel like it will satisfy your soul. You've carved out for your life. You've shaped for yourself a life that you feel is going to bring satisfaction to you. You've set your goals, your ambitions, your dreams, your aspirations, because ultimately those things provided an image, right? A, 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 the possibility or at least the hope that maybe, just maybe, if you can attain them, your soul will be satisfied satisfied forever. And little did you know that as you attained one, you were running fast after the next. And after you attained that one, you're running fast after the next. And you're never going to run out of things to pursue because your soul can't be satisfied by the things of this world because the world is a broken system that's constantly leading and ultimately can never provide you the satisfaction that you seek. And so Jesus' offer of living water is an offer to all of us. Jesus is challenging us to turn to God, the one that we were made for, to reject this hope of finding satisfaction in the things of this world, and to pray to God that our full satisfaction will be found in Him. After all, God created us to be fully satisfied in Him. In fact, we could look at several psalms that point this out in Psalm 60, um, 63. Listen to what it says right there at the very uh, beginning. It says, Oh God, you are my God, I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh 
yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there's no water. The psalmist is recognizing here that ultimately the thirsting of his soul is for God, is not for the things of this world, is not for the things of this world being made right or attaining abundance of things in this world, that those things are never going to satisfy the soul. Oh God, my my God, I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. Or in Psalm 42, there's this um, Psalm uh, uh, 42 verse 1. Listen to what it says. As the deer pants or thirst. That's an odd word. We don't use any more pants. As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants thirst for you, O oh God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God. You see the scriptures from beginning to end and Jesus is doing the same thing that all of scripture before him has done and it's pointing us to the fact that our longing, the longings of our hearts, the desires that we have for our life can only be satisfied in Jesus Christ. It doesn't sound right, does it, right? Because from the time we're born, we're taught that we should dream, that we should have aspirations, that the sky is the limit. Reach for it, get the degree, get the job, get the marriage, get the house, get the car, get the ever society showing us what we can get and ultimately it's not pointing to what we've already gotten in God who created us for himself that all of our longings and desires could be met in him and so when Jesus offers this woman living water and when she finally understands it she recognizes how valuable it is. And, and at least three things happen here at the end of this story. The first thing is this lady realizes that she no longer has any need for her bucket. The tools she's been using to fill her life with things that will satisfy bring satisfaction. She recognized she didn't need it anymore. In fact, if you look at verse 28 of John chapter 4, it says, so the woman left her water pot. She just dropped it there. And went into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all the things that I've done. This is not the Christ, is it? She's going, get this possibly be the one that we've been waiting for. The one worth laying my bucket down for. But it's now I can find satisfaction and fulfillment in God. So the first thing we see is that this lady lays her bucket down and she realizes that she no longer has to stay in this non-committal relationship with this guy that knows, knows will never love her. Because now she's able to pursue and find the ultimate satisfaction with God. I imagine her prayer was that prayer in Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God, I shall seek you earnestly, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh yearns for you, and in dry and weary land where there's no water. That was her prayer, the song of every day, her reminder to begin the day, that no matter how 
strong her inclinations are to find her hope and joy and satisfaction in the things of this world. Ultimately, those things are not going to satisfy, but her satisfaction and hope and joy can only be found in God. And she needed that reminder every day. Maybe we need that reminder every day. Maybe we need to take Psalm 63, verse 1, and write it on a sheet of paper and hang it on our doorpost or hang it on our mirror or write it in our daily planner and we need to come back to it and remember it that our soul ultimately is thirsty for God and we don't have to default to the chasing of the things of this world because those things ultimately only end in frustration or desire for more. Second thing we see that happens in the story is this, slave, this lady's shame and her brokenness is overcome with joy. Her shame and her brokenness was overcome with joy. There was a moment in this lady's life where she was wishing to herself, I hope no one else finds out just how broken I am. I hope nobody ever knows my shame. Right? We live in a society where we can hide over, we can cover over our shame, we can post only positive things to Facebook and make it look like life is alright. Right? It's all going well. We can project an image, we can create an image, another persona if you will, of what we want to look like and appear in the world. And this lady was probably hoping that she could create another persona for herself, a different image to go forward. And she found out that God already knew the real person that she was and the pain and brokenness that she had experienced and that he loved her unconditionally in spite of it. And that brought her such joy. It had overwhelmed her shame and her brokenness. She ran back into the city, yelling, This is what I've done. This man told me all about it. He knew it before. Now, I don't know if y'all know how strange that was that he knew it. She's going, Whoa. Like in our day, you need to kind of know people's business because they post it on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> Stop people on social media, right? You kind of know people's business often because it's just kind of out there, right? In this day and age, stuff wasn't just out there. There's no way for Jesus to know this lady's past. That's why she says, you must be a prophet, right? God must have revealed this to you. But yet she runs back into the city shouting at the top of her lungs, come see a man. He knew me and he loved me, and now I've come face to face with the love of God. You see, when we tasted living water, we're no longer ashamed of our repentance, of our brokenness, of our shame, right? But it's overcome with joy. We know that we've tasted living water when we're able to have joy. It doesn't mean that the shame was gone, was um, that the brokenness was, was gone or fully healed. It doesn't mean she had no longer the behaviors. What um, was that movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger? This is random. An eraser where he would erase people's past. It wasn't this lady's past that had been erased as though it never happened, but rather God's joy had brought her healed from her past, so that it, it, once she could come, this is this is this is um this is this is um it's just powerful for us, right? And once she could come face to face with her past and recognize that her past had no more hold on her present or her future, right? She could come face to face with all the stuff that she did and recognize that no, that was no longer holding her back. That was no longer dictating her future, but she had new life in Jesus Christ and had joy. And there was beauty even in her brokenness. 
even in your brokenness. Third thing you see that happens in the story is this lady glorifies God. If you look down at verse 39, at the very end of this passage, it says, From that city, many Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things I've done. Because she had tasted living water and come to know that God wasn't judging her because of her sin, but was loving her even while she was in her sin. She glorified God, turning from her sin, not hiding it, not pretending as though it's not there, not wishing her past away, but using her past as the very thing through which she would glorify God. The powerful effect of that is many in that city believe. This is a scripture for us. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks this morning that you give us this opportunity to open this scripture that challenges us in so many ways. Particular. Thank God for the privilege of this story. I mean, most people already know, but just if you want to. And we've heard two tables in the front. How you spoke clearly and boldly. The woman at the woman. Next. And God, my prayer is that you give us ears to hear how you are speaking clearly and boldly to us. And how your voice is saying to us, you don't have to be embarrassed by your shame. You don't have to be embarrassed by your brokenness or your pain. How your voice is saying to us that you can be open about it. Because there's a God in heaven who knows about it and wants to use it for his glory. God, may we be vessels who are used in that way that you might increase and we might decrease and that the world may come to know the love of God, our Lord and our Savior. In your Son, Jesus Christ's name,
the level of hatred that they, that they got. Uh, Wesley talked about how uh, 700 years before the story was told, how if the Jews had, or the Hebrew people at the time had the villain in their story, it would have been the Assyrians, right? came in, smothered into the people, and they replaced those people with their own people. So they basically ravaged Samaria and left their own people there to have their way with their people. And so I'm thinking, what could have caused that much hatred amongst those people? And it probably grew early on, you know, um, maybe it was out of Looking at the Samaritans maybe reminded them of what had happened. You know, a lot of times bad things happen in our lives and relationships are mirrored because 